Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Tray tables stowed, seats in the upright position, prepare for our initial descent into traveling hell. Why must travel be so passive-aggressively painful? That is today's big question. Full disclosure, stay with us. Broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by Health Warrior, makers of Chia Bars. Ounce for ounce, Chia has more omega-3 than salmon, more fiber than oatmeal, and packs protein, calcium, and antioxidants, certified gluten-free, certified non-GMO, certified kosher, and you know me, I love these Chia bars, especially apple, cinnamon, and mango, but you can also get them in chocolate, peanut butter, banana nut, coconut, coffee, acai berry, dark chocolate cherry. The Chia seeds are available in premium black Chia seeds and premium white Chia seeds. Visit them at healthwarrior.com. And by Elwood Thompson's, locally owned and independently operated natural foods market serving Richmond, Virginia since 1989. I love the hot bar for breakfast. I love Indian Wednesdays. I love the cafe. I love the beat. Visit them at the top of Carytown and on elwoodthompsons.com. Why must travel be so passive-aggressively painful? If you think about it, you walk into a hotel room, $9 bottle of Fiji water. They try to break down the levels of Wi-Fi access. You can get the standard slow-as-hell, never-available version for free, but you have to pay $15 just to get industry-standard Wi-Fi or the kiosk at the United Airlines terminal, which three different screens remind you that you're getting a crap kind of cabin level seat experience. Are you sure you don't want to upgrade? Are you sure you don't want to buy premium access in the line? That is jump ball number one for my esteemed guest today. It's a big meaning of life question, but we're going to attack that and many other things head on. Rafat Ali, CEO and founder of Skift, a travel biz information provider, joins us from New York. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. And here in studio, Meg Riley, frequent traveler, planning director of user experience and strategy at the Martin Agency, the ad firm that I know and love. It's my neighborhood ad firm. She is down from New York. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me here. I do want to get some standard disclaimers out of the way. I do believe that the Martin Agency is going to be working with Kayak. I think that was announced in the news over the last week or two. The Martin Agency also, I approached them to help me come up with the, the, the creative impetus for my show. They designed the logo and whatnot. And the final disclaimer, I believe, Meg, you were touring keyboardist for Depeche Mode. Is that what you told me? Yes, totally. All right. Rafat, jump into it. Tell me how you came up with this term, hate selling, which caught everybody's eyes. Yeah, this was uh, summer of last year, I think end of summer last year. I was trying to book a flight and a car for, I believe, Whistler, Canada, uh, for a conference I was going to on a weekend, on a Saturday morning. So uh, usually in my more relaxed state of mind and started booking on airline, I think it was Delta, and started looking at uh, the car rental sites and just got bombarded with all kinds of passive aggressive, the term that you used, um, messages about buy now or else, and just terrible, lang- this passive aggressive language. The Delta one, particularly the lowest tier, if you buy, uh, there's a pop-up that comes up that has like 20 different d- disclaimers or disc- about here's what you're not going to get. And so I took a screenshot of that 
and tweeted it and somehow I don't necessarily remember. I don't know why I said hate selling. Actually, I do remember. There's a term in media called hate reading, which is mm. you hate reading a site, but you read it because you you know you just want to know what's happening, or and I or think, hate watching, for example. You know, I think it was when watching. Allison Williams was on the live version of Peter Pan. Everybody was on Twitter saying, "I'm gonna, I can't stand it, but I'm gonna hate watch this." You know? Yeah. So I think that, <laughs> and you know, the word hate, it's not the literal sense of hate. It's more sort of tongue in cheek, and so I I did that hate I. I Coined, I came up with that term, hate selling, and tweeted it. So that took off. Um, people started retweeting and saying, yes, this is the perfect term for this kind of uh, uh, travel selling. This is really what we needed in terms of the ter- of a term to encapsulate everything about buying travel online. And then car rental in Avis's case, Avis is probably one of the worst uh, e-commerce websites on the planet, really. Um, they should be ashamed of themselves. Pretty much all of the air, all the car rental sites should be ashamed of themselves. Um, Hertz is actually better than than the others. Um, tons of fees um, in. Uh, yeah, there's one. In, there's a premium location surcharge of seventeen point eight three percent. There's really? the airport fees, which is essentially the airport fees. So. Yeah, you know, if if on the first page when you're starting it says twenty three dollars a day, and then by the end of that process it's hundred and hundred and twenty three dollars a day, then there's something wrong with that whole process of, of selling. So I think so. Again, I took a screenshot of that as well and tweeted. So those two things combined became this whole thing that weekend, and I ended up writing an article on it on Monday uh, for Skift. And then, uh, and then, so that's how the the term was coined. And a bunch of people wrote blog posts and stories based on this is the perfect term to describe this whole um, sale process and travel. And Meg, as he unpacked it, he says, "This is what happens when you let conversion marketers run amok with customer experience. They made it a science, but forgot being human." So you can imagine all these, you know, McKinsey and Bain kind of bean counters saying, "This is how you do it." Maybe by by saying that these are other charges, you can still theoretically be truthful in saying that it's a $23 a day rental, but then put the other things on kind of shady municipal or state surcharges. It's not us. Look, we're trying to give you this thing. In the end, it's still an annoying user experience as you're a user experience expert. Yeah, it's completely annoying. And I think it's a case of, you know, these marketers and business people have so much information at their fingertips and it's information overloads. They try to leverage each piece of data they have to build something, but they totally completely forget about what that experience is for the consumer and how, you know, passive aggressive or annoying it may be to them. But, you know, I think ultimately they're trying to do the right thing by use all the data they have to create the best, you know, offers for their customers, but they completely forget about the customers while they're doing it, which is totally the wrong thing to do. And, you know, Rafat, I think back to, um, you know, JetBlue was supposed to be the apotheosis of a new experience in travel. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be the antithesis of the fat bloated, um, hostile legacy carriers, which really they hated themselves. Management did not trust the unions. The unions did not trust management. Neither of them much cared for the passengers. The passengers were just load factors, right? And so I remember when JetBlue came to market and I covered its IPO, it was maybe April of 2002, was supposed to be a different way of doing business. They were supposed to have a very clean user interface. Um, They were supposed to use less crowded airports. They encourage staff and and, and people on the plane to kind of take pride for these new leather-equipped Airbus A320s and stay and clean it to help turn the planes faster. But then in the evolution of everything that happened, 
uh, with 9-11 and the spike in oil prices from $30 to, say, $145, they became a legacy carrier themselves. Right. I mean, they charge for bags. They they kind of co-opted all the worst best practices of the entire industry. Yes. But I mean, the answer is yes. But which is that I think they still are compared to the mainline carriers, still a lot more friendlier airline. Their seats tends their seat or at least on the economy side or most of their almost all other planes are just correct, single but, type of seats. Correct. But this bar has changed so much because yeah, everything yeah, has is, been nickeled and dimed away completely. from us. So what has happened and this is I think we're at an equilibrium point in twenty sixteen where it's completely accepted that the airline uh, uh, airline fare has been unbundled completely, which means that I think you see now people grumbling less. I don't have data for it, but you can probably ask some social media company that monitors social media that grumbling about fees on airlines has probably gone down in the last year, not because the fees has gone down. That's because people have just gotten used to it. So the baseline- It's, has like, it's like a learned helplessness. Yes. It's, you know, it's the big debates that happen about unbundling in cable and other industries turns out have completely played out a lot earlier in airline industry. And so once that base has been set, people are now going to pay for these different things. How do you then sell them in the right human way, these things? And I think JetBlue still, if you look at their site versus a Delta site, you look at their app versus Delta app, you look at their colors, you look at their, they're still... um, they're still much more human than any other airline in U.S. Uh, Southwest is certainly up there. Uh, Virgin America, even though their web for for all the uh, sort of revolution in terms of boutique airline that Virgin America brought, their their website has always sucked for whatever reason. Um, it's only now, I think, in the last few six to eight months that they've gotten better. They relaunched their site. Uh, it's actually a pretty uh, good site now, but. Um, I think JetBlue still, the experience is there. What they launched with Mint, I don't know if you've flown Mint, but it's a revolutionary, I think, as a user. it's Tell it's, us what Mint is first. So Mint is this uh, limited release product that they have, which uh, is essentially flatbed suites that they have in their planes only from New York to LA and New York to San Francisco, so cross-transcontinental um, uh, flights. And uh, it's not... Um, it's not 10x economy, it's 2x economy in terms of price. And that's certainly doable. And so last week I flew from New York to LA, I took Mint, and it's the food is amazing, the service is very good. So for not being that much more crazy than an economy, and you know, guess what, That's what I'm, if I can afford it or somebody else is paying for it uh, for me to fly, that's the one I'm gonna take. So. It's, I think, from a price point and an experience perspective, that's that's also disruptive in a lot of ways. So I think that that you know that's a great product. Meg Riley, I want you to kind of walk through a typical business trip with us, and 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 the pressure points of user experience, where you kind of take notes or grit your teeth and say this could and should and can be done better. Sure. I mean, I think it's it's interesting when you think about the different types of travel that there are. But as a business traveler, you know, I typically get a request to go somewhere or need to go someplace like here in Richmond for a meeting. I'll reach out to our travel department and they know what my loyalty preferences are. So that's the kind of travel that they pull. They pull, you know, the airline I'm loyal to and they pull the hotel that they know I'm loyal to and they give me that information and I pick a 
I choose based on when I want to get somewhere. So there's less of that kind of romancing of the travel experience and um, wanting to choose based on a location because that's already predetermined for me. And then once I get somewhere, I mean, the experience for me could be better when I'm arriving somewhere. So if there's Uber, I'll always use that because it's a easy way to get to where I need to go. Um, but when I get to a hotel like where I'm staying here, they kind of never remember that I'm a loyalty member. They don't know, you know, that I've stayed there before. They always ask me or tell me where the elevator is. It's simple things where the the travel experience could be personalized, not to the extent where they know I have two dogs and I like to read the New York Times theater section, but to the extent that they know that I've been there a number of times and, and that I work at the Martin Agency, which is right across the street. Um, so th- those little areas can mean a lot to people, I think. Um, and there, there are some boutique places and, you know, chains that once you're a, a, at an elite status of, you know, superior magnitude, you get that treatment. But there are ways that you can leverage all of this data that it seems right now they're taking advantage of us in the booking experience to make our stay better that I think are missed opportunities. Mm. Why can't they just have a little note field inside that says, you know, likes corner room, does not like ambient street noise. I never quite understood this. Or another question, for example, um, and I know the the economics of the hotel business, I mean, th- you know, the, the predictive nature of how much a person will spend on the minibar if they're an expense account person, but something as basic, and, and both of you, I'd love for you to chime in. If I walk into any tier of hotel room, if there's a basic wicker basket with three 50-cent bags of chips and a couple of candy bars and complimentary bottles of Poland Springs or something just to say, here, you know, here's like a bridge loan to the minibar. Do you know what I'm saying? I always thought, is that really going to disrupt their model? Is that really going to kill their revenue model? After all these years of, of, do you remember when we had to make long-distance calls from the hotel before cell phones, before internet accessibility, that they would charge us these exorbitant fees? There were these hotel long-distance operators. Do you remember... You know the, the 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 stuff that would be put in the mini bar, the, the 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 bottles of water that they still put out there. It's not even Fiji water. Sometimes you walk in to a hotel and it'd be like, uh, you know, Dasani water for six or seven dollars a bottle, and you're right. advertising it to me like you're doing me a favor, like it's a courtesy, where it's the very antithesis of it. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think that they're worried about the business dynamics of their chain or, or their conglomerate that they're part of, which is obviously something they need to do. But it, within that, you forget about the actual people that are staying at your hotels and why they've chosen to stay there and why they are there. I mean, and the, just the physical experience of being someplace. You know, I don't understand the dynamics of how much it costs to put a basket like that in every room. I'm sure at some level it gets to be cost prohibitive. But, you know, there there should be some sort of recognition of who you are and if you've stayed there a number of times, even if you're not an elite status someplace, to, to build an emotional connection with where you're staying outside of the location of where you're traveling to. The cost-wise, a few things have happened in the hotel industry. Um, the food and beverage part of the of the business historically um, and this is this sounds so ridiculous, even as as I'm talking about it, they have outsourced food and beverage to third-party companies. Um, I think the companies are now the hotel companies are now coming around to the fact that outsourcing such an important part of their hotel experience when people want to or potentially could be eating in those premises or um, you know stay, they're staying in those premises. Now it's coming full circle where boutiques, which initially pioneered owning the food and beverage experience themselves, um, the bigger hotel chains now want to own that experience themselves. Um, so hopefully that will lead to a better 
uh, food and beverage overall experience. But you're right in terms of these small things that matter way beyond the cost that they come and build it into the price of the room or the or the stay, whatever, over a period of X number of days, whatever it is. But, uh, you know, do those small things that there's, um, you know, healthy snacks or cookies at the or whatever types of things at the check-in or in your hotel room every day. Do not charge for water anymore. Um, it doesn't make sense to me, Rafat, that these it tiny... It doesn't make enough but money here's, for them no, to but, be able to... No, but here's uh, a point. These tiny little touch points, it was like the blue chips and the free headphones that JetBlue gave out at the outset. Yeah. These tiny little things that are just incidental costs that could totally be larded back onto the fully loaded fare um, that that create these affinity points. Like, you know, the double tree cookies that they give you. Yeah. Um, yeah. That they're an incidental cost of goods sold. And I never understood. There must be a science to it. And there must be uh, high-priced consultants behind it because, you know, it's going to wreck some sort of science that they have to the total guest bill at the end. Yeah, I think there's something to that. The, the revenue optimization people, which is very akin to what conversion marketers are in the digital marketing world, are revenue optimization people. That's what they're called. Um, these are accountants that are trying to uh, to to figure out what the daily and you know in some cases more than da- you know more frequency than daily um, pricing of hotel rooms should be. It's very much. It's almost. It's not as as crazy as it as it is with an airline ticket where the prices change every second or minute or whatever it is. Um, but in hotel rooms, the prices change based on availability and, uh, you know, wh- what region you are, what city you are, what day of, what day it is, what weather it is. So all of these big data in some senses, while allows you to do a lot of these calculations, can also play havoc with the customer, uh, the actual human at the other, other end of it. So, um you know, build these costs in. I mentioned I was in LA uh, last week, and uh, Silvercar. I don't know how many. Uh, Tell us about it. Tell us about it. It's the same. I, I read. I saw on TV that they're all the same cars, like Audis or something, or Volkswagens. Yes. So you can just have, get one car. I just think that what has happened in this third wave of internet, or whatever you want to call it, one good thing has happened. There are these super specialty companies that have emerged that do one thing and one thing well. Casper, one mattress, it does it very, very, very well. Silver car, it has only one car, Audi A4 silver car. That's it. Um, that's, uh, it's a great car, Audi. You know, you probably among the best cars from a rental perspective, unless you're paying for like a sp- uh, super. Oh, and don't, don't even get me into the clean diesel TDI, but we'll get into that into another block. But uh, let, we're going to unpack this. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking all things travel, travel misery, travel disruption, hate selling. Our guests are Rafat Ali, CEO and founder of Skift, a travel business information provider. He's a prolific uh, blogger. Um, he's on the lecture circuit. You see his pieces pinged everywhere from the Today Show to Business Insider. Um, Check him out. And Meg Riley, Planning Director of User Experience and Strategy at the Martin Agency. She knows and loves and hates travel at the same time. I do want to get into this idea of disruption because both of you have hit on the the central disruptors of, of leisure and hospitality. At least the Taxi industry is being violently disrupted by Uber. You took an Uber to get here in the rain, Meg. Uh, But it's also uh, being used in lieu of car rental services. And Rafat mentioned Silvercar. There are ways around this purgatory of coming into an airport right now and dealing with the Avis counter uh, or, 
you know, for example, uh, going to a hotel and dealing with these passive aggressive touch points. You can check into an Airbnb where, you know, I, I have I have taken Ubers in Boston, for example. The first time I took it, I got into uh, Logan, and this Ghanaian driver shows up with a Prius. I actually just downloaded it in the airport, put all my information in there, and he shows up and he offers me a bottle of water and he's got serious radio going on, like, which station would you like? He, You know, it was just such a beautiful experience and he took me to the back bay and um, this was for my business school reunion and I stayed at a, you know, an Airbnb property and the family that that owned that house in Austin was very cordial that way. They put cookies out for me. These were very simple ways of making me want to come back to both of those experiences. Yeah, and I think that comes back to the experience they give you. You know, I've, I've had similar experiences with Uber, even better experiences with Lyft, particularly in San Francisco, you know, and how they're different from Uber and, you know, more wanting to get to know you at a human level. And, and um, Airbnb is just really, I think, you know, it's been written about Agnosium on Skift, but it's totally disrupting the industry. It's growing and growing. And what they focus on is, you know, the destination and the human experience you're going to get when you go somewhere. You know, of course, you have the options of staying somewhere from $50 a night to, you know, $5,000 a night. But it's less about, you know, the the ancillary revenue that whoever owns an Airbnb house is going to get if you want two rooms or if you want a fancy refrigerator. Um, you know, they sell themselves on the stories and the experiences you create when you go somewhere. And I think, you know, the travel industry has lost that luster in general because of all this data they have now and the revenue they're trying to push with breaking off every little thing that you purchase. And, you know, every, these boutique hotels are really starting to take advantage of how they've seen Uber be successful and try and bring that experience into what they're doing by, you know, collaborating with local vendors and bringing in unique experiences to these smaller hotels. But what's interesting to me is how these bigger conglomerates like Marriott and Hilton, are they ever going to be able to do that? Or how are they going to you know, push off what's happening. Well, tell us about that, Rafad. You guys wrote about the mega trend of of huge mergers and acquisitions. Obviously, this is an industry of scale, booking, back office stuff, uh, properties. A lot of them are managed like uh, real estate investment trusts. Do you think there's any hope for these guys to become more human as they become more conglomeratized? I do think that boutique hotels initially and now Airbnb, uh, the lessons, every large hotel company wants to be a boutique company. Um, that they want to pretend that every of their properties are unique and everything is di- there's no cookie cutter solutions and we are uh, this is a room just made for you type of mentality. Um, there's early signs. Well, I mean that that does have advantages for the consumer potentially down the line. I do think that uh, among the chains, um, Marriott is trying really hard. Uh, this from certainly from a marketing perspective, it all breaks down. It's funny. I was last week, uh, there was a award show at the Marriott Marquis in Times Square, and I'm sure everybody in the planet has, in in the business world, has stayed at at, at that hotel. All their marketing breaks down as soon as you enter that that the lobby of Marriott Marquis. It's confusing. It's like freaking which, where are the elevators. You have to. By the way, do you know this is horrible, and I won't answer it if you don't know it. Do you know why they put up? Um, 
fences around the rooms, the balconies. It's 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 kind of a for morbid the, for the suicide. Um, yeah. Is that what it was? Oh, yes. Man. And conventions are had there and everything, but it's a really austere property. And this is in many ways their flagship New York City. It is their flagship New York mm-hmm. City and all their marketing. They're doing a brilliant job of like they're completely bought into content is the way to market storytelling movies. They have a branded content. Ooh, a stor- storytelling brands. Really? And that's not cliche. So, so, Tell us your story, Brand. <laughs> they have completely bought into it, and they've done some good work. But if the, if there's disconnect from your marketing to your actual experience, and this is what the hate selling thing is all about. So, okay, if you're online, you've uh, you've passively aggressively sold me on million things. If my experience from there gets better. I'll be fine with it. But turns out the airline and the airport experience is the same, the worst in terms of passive aggressiveness. Um, if my, if you've very aggressively converted me into a customer, can you then make sure that I'm taken care of from there on? But if that doesn't happen, then the whole experience is crappy. So that's, I think, the where it all comes together, which is, okay, passive, if you want to really aggressively convert me because that's the only way to convert in a digital environment where you're getting so many inputs from all kinds of places. And if you do convert me, can you make sure that from there I'm taken care of? That has not happened. And then that then creates this whole cycle of customer dissatisfaction. If you look at any big list of the top 100 brands in business, um, any any type of list. Airlines, hotels, never feature in it. Um, hotels may be sometimes Marriott, is, sometimes Disney is, um, but Disney is an overall company, not just um, not just a resort. Well, we so. know, Rafat, that it is an intensely cyclical business, right? This, this is contingencies on uh, leisure travel, business travel, uh, corporate expenses, the ability to bill your clients for, you know, travel and entertainment and everything else. You spelled out in a great post in Skift about the M&A boom in, in hotels. Correct. Marriott seized the moment by buying Starwood for $12 billion. I mean, it wasn't covered as much as we thought it would. Weeks later... Acor Hotels, Accor paid $2.9 billion for Fairmont, Raffles, and Swiss yeah. Hotel. So yeah. continued demand growth and record occupancy levels matched with modest supply growth will also foster 2016's frenzy. The economic climate, healthy with flush cash, is conducive for expansion. So what happens here is Marriott's deal created the world's largest hotel brand. It has a portfolio of 30 different names with which to stay. In parallel to this, you're seeing... Airbnb being offered across the globe. And there is this research. I don't know if Quartz did a story this week. Goldman Sachs came out with a research report. Someone on the street said that those who have tried Airbnb tend to come back to the brand. They want so to give it a call try. bullshit on that. Yeah, tell us. Um, I don't think that's true, Goldman Sachs. I publicly said they're idiots um, on that research part. Uh, for now, there was also some story, a Morgan Stanley analyst did that, that uh, Airbnb is hurting hotel stocks. That's objectively untrue. Right now, there is no indication in in most of the major markets that uh, hotel occupancy is being uh, or the prices are being driven down as a result of Airbnb in the market. Uh, I think that it's still early. It's still too early. The volumes aren't there. Uh, but I do think that uh, 
there's going to be a coexistence of hotels and, and Airbnb. Uh, I see it in my own behavior. I, one night in LA, I stayed at an Airbnb, and the second night, I stayed at the at at a resort. Um, and and for me, you know, I didn't I, I didn't miss a beat. And I think that that's are you are Rafat? Are you a unique traveler, and that you're discriminating enough, and you can call BS enough that they know not to mess with you, or that you 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 are such. You're such a connoisseur of the industry. You know where the. I'm not the, connoisseur. The, I'm self-aware. I think that I'm certainly not a connoisseur. I have no interest in the points being a points geek, uh, or like no, not know, a points, points geek, but knowing not to go back to the bad places. That that they know better than to mess with you, right? Uh, no, Is there I any way to keep track of that? Of um, no, I do keep. I do give benefit of doubt to people. Uh, when I stay at places, you know, they may have had a bad day. Reality is, people at the front lines. Uh, you know, may, may or may not be uh, indicative of the overall company at all times, depending on sort of what they're And, and like what happens is. when you tweet out a screen grab of the Delta kiosk or Avis? So I want to see what happens, what happens in this there. world. Yeah. So what happens, so this hate selling, when I, uh, the chief communications officer of Delta uh, is the guy who's an ex-AP business editor, interestingly. Um, he joined last year sometime or maybe a, the year before as the chief communications officer of Delta. He spoke at our Skiff Global Forum last year. He was on a panel that I did uh, on the changing role of communications in PR. <laughs> After all of this thing, I ended up on the Today Show. There's uh, all this. I asked him, did you hear about this whole thing about hate selling? He said he never heard of it. So it didn't even reach him. This wow. whole thing. And these are the people that read Skift and somehow missed it, or the people that work under him should have flagged it for him. So there's a lot of blindness to the to, um, to the larger conversation that happens uh, about airlines, and maybe there's willful blindness because they know they get hated upon at all times. Um, so uh, I thought that was incredible that he didn't even hear about this whole um, viral thing that happened. You know, I wonder... Um Meg, when I when I look at United Airlines, why do they even have a Twitter handle? Because it's just a glutton for punishment. I imagine the burnout rate of that job must be worse than the kind of the worst boiler room telemarketer ever. The abuse that you take and people, the way they can voice their displeasure now, it's so completely different than just six, seven years ago where it was a matter of sending an email to a customer service email or, or stopping at the customer service desk when you're exhausted and your plane finally gets in and, you know, to be taken care of in four to six weeks, you could get instant gratification right now by complaining. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, what, what are you seeing in that user experience? The fact that the user experience has been moved largely to the smartphone. Your smartphone right. is your gateway to the world, is your weapon, is your way of getting even. Right. I mean, I think it's a blessing and a curse, right? You know, in the airline industry, you can tweet at Delta or United and get immediate response, positive or negative. It's like, I feel your pain. Right. And I think that that's great. Because, but that's all I feel. But but waiting on the phone to talk to someone, you know, can be equally as, you know, disturbing. And so to be able to, you know, get immediate response or at least know they're looking into something, I think is, is a benefit of all these social channels. But to be, you know, all these brands... Everyone's talking about becoming part of a larger conversation, but when you're in the travel service industry particularly, it's very difficult to separate, you know, that 
everyone kind of bitching to you about how awful their experience is on social to telling them the, the broader story about what you're trying to do because they don't buy it when everything else they see surrounding Well, what might have kept them honest back in the day, you just take airlines in isolation. There were so many more airlines and they went through their ring of fire hellish period after 9-11 and the run-up in oil prices and mass bankruptcies across the board. And now American and U.S. Air have merged, Northwest and Delta have merged, Continental and United have become like this, this 10-headed beast that no one seems to like. Like I personally miss the old Continental, mm-hmm. you know, where it, it stuck to its knitting. Now you kind of merge these two really disparate cultures. And if you know anything about merging airlines, it just doesn't even have – even America West and um, – U.S. Air, which has now been folded into American, they're still vestigial. You know, people are loyalists to their first brand that was merged into it. It's a, it's an unwieldy thing to do. I wonder, and and any of you can kind of jump into this. Why isn't this a period ripe for more disruption in the airlines? Why isn't a JetBlue popping in Rafat or someone yeah. else? Oil prices have yeah. fallen back down to thirty dollars a startup barrel. Startup airlines, yeah, really tough on the startup airline side. It really, it's actually less dependent on the airline uh, in the oil price, even though that's certainly a factor and helps quite a bit. It's really dependent upon airline slots that you get at airports, and if it's the the slots. These are landing slots at airports that are auctioned off and airports, that's how airports make money. And um, if at the major airports, all of these airport uh, uh, landing slots are locked up by major airlines, then it's very hard for a startup airline to come. Uh, There is, obviously we're forgetting the revolution that happened with the low cost airlines that came uh, in the 70s, starting with the 70s, Southwest came in US, uh, Spirit now, um, and in um, in Europe, it was EasyJet and uh, Ryanair. So, I mean, you know, those were the Ubers of their time. Uh, in Asia, Southeast Asia, Air Asia um, has completely changed uh, the game for how that whole region of the world started. So there have been instances historically in the past and not too distant past where startup airlines worked. Now, with the oil prices until recently being really bad and lock on all the landing slots, it just wasn't possible. Uh, even Virgin America, for all the love that it gets, is a, is a, is a tiny airline that's struggling uh, to make money. And you have seen there's there are senators that are probing uh, – they're urging probes of anti-competitive behavior of the airlines that, you know, this is still an open question that – the oh, fact yeah, that there used to be eight, and now that there are three, is there is there evidence of you know the, the, the you know implicit price gouging? Certainly, the fares don't seem commensurate. Yes, you can account for inflation and the improved economy, but in the past, you know the the mechanism where um, the competitive fruits really would be felt and tasted by the customer, the passenger, was that oil prices would fall. You'd get fare wars. Um, yeah. You'd get uh, you know typically if if there was a period of of, of um, you know, flush profits, the workforce would go after it. There would, the the airlines, uh, you know, management and the companies, the shareholders would never be allowed to get so flush. But none of these airlines have given back baggage fees, for example, Rafat. It seems like there's a ratchet effect, no, you know? Nothing. United, no. I think, recently came back and said, we'll offer you Stroop waffles, you know? Yeah, um, something like JetBlue, JetBlue, you know, even for years, it says we're, we're never going to, you know, Charge. there's going to be the first bag free. And that they threw their hat into that at a time when their profits were spiking because oil prices were falling. So I still sense that even with all the slots taken up at the airports and the airports being congested, 
that you must imagine, you know, Meg, from a user experience thing, there's certainly room for a disruptor to come in. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't understand the business dynamics of how the slots work, but it, it's interesting to me if you think about who, how these airlines make money. It's off of frequent business travelers. And so the legacy airlines have kind of gotten to where they are through that. But when you look at JetBlue, they've created Mint, which Rafat mentioned earlier, which is really targeted at business travelers. You know, there's Virgin, which is changing their options to reward those more frequent travelers. Um, I think that if there's a way to disrupt, it's through maybe that younger segmentation of business travelers who are more likely to use Airbnb and Uber, who are looking for something different and don't have this legacy loyalty relationship with um, these legacy carriers and are looking for something new and are more willing to try it because they don't have these points that have been built up that they're going to lose if they try something new. I don't know how it happens from a business dynamics perspective, but it is really interesting to think about how one of these smaller carriers can come in and kind of take away from the legacy carriers or, you know, if there is someone new that totally enters the game in a different way on a transcontinental or more popular route. I don't think so. I don't think that the disruption is going to happen at scale. The disruption is going to happen in boutique ways, in specific routes. This example in New York, um, this this airline called La Company, which uh, is a French airline, or at least has a French name to it, um, flies, only does two routes. Newark to Luton Airport in London, so that's the the most outlying airport in London area, and Newark to Charles de Gaulle in Paris. That's it. But it's also only business class, 57 or 73 seats. Again, the business class is priced. It's a it's a not fully flat, but um, but almost flat bed, um, and it's 2x uh, the price of economy. So that's disruption at the edges of so. That airline is actually doing well, uh, as far as I know. It's a private company, but they're doubling the frequency of the flights on just this route. I think that's the only way disruption will happen in this market. Internationally, Emirates, Etihad, and Qatar, the Gulf big airlines, have completely disrupted the world, if you will, uh, in so many ways by by having subsidies from the governments, by obviously yeah. I just saw prices. this Jennifer Jennifer Aniston commercials. You know that she expects a shower yeah. in the the Emirates ones, right? Like it used to be. I re- I remember in business school there were people that say that there's one flight you never want to end. It's raffles class on Singapore Air. Like that, it, it it totally turns air travel on its head. You don't want the seventeen hours to end because they pamper you, they treat you so well. You know, there's this national competition to become a uh, a Singapore Airlines flight attendant. It's just such a a, a wonderful idyllic almost. Um, you know, Big Brother type experience, uh, but now you're seeing that replicated with Etihad and, and Emirates and some of the other super luxury players. Yeah, I mean, those are uh, there's a arms race, if you will, on the luxury end. Uh, Etihad launched their uh, completely private suite, as they call it, apartment. Uh, it could be the size of a New York apartment, really. Wow. Um, that obviously is really expensive. So. I do think that that um, the, the Gulf Airlines have completely changed the game, which, which by the way, U.S. airlines are fighting for them to get their landing slots in U.S. Um, obviously, they will never be able to, the rules will never allow domestic flights to be operated by these players, unless like some economic catastrophe happens and these airlines have, you know, there's no choice but for Delta to be bought by Emirates. I'm just making that up. Um, there's and then the laws, the laws would have to change in that. The laws would have to change. The same is in Europe too, where the laws don't allow 
these airlines to have a hub in Europe. But it's only one recession away from those laws changing in Europe, not in the US, but in Europe. If they get a foothold in Europe in one of the major cities or airport hubs, it's game over on the transatlantic flights. Mm. The most profitable route for every U.S. airline. Full disclosure, we're talking to Rafat Ali. He's CEO and founder of Skift, a travel business information provider. Joining me in studio is Meg Riley, planning director of user experience and strategy at the Martin Agency. She's a frequent traveler, a traveling wonk, um, <laughs> knows the brands, knows some, loves some, hates others. Um, I do, I do want to get a sense from both of you to what extent technology at your fingertips, at the at the traveler's, at the user's fingertips, can um, help fight back or help make this experience less painful. Uh, Rafat, you guys wrote about it with um, the battle in online booking sites and apps and brand sites and apps. I mean, one of the big comeback kids from um, you know Web 1.0 is Priceline.com, which was mm-hmm. left for dead in 2001, 2002. I remember I lost a lot of money on that stock. But it's suddenly come back, and it's super big and super relevant. And there are some people that swear by Kayak. I don't know, you know, w- what the world means for the Orbitzes and Expedias of the world. Yeah. And and there was this other one that made news where that helps you kind of game the system and just buy legs or or buy um, yeah skip like you know skip fight and and the airlines were really bothered by that. Uh, yeah. Tell tell yeah. us what you're seeing out there and kind of what's at the vanguard. Yeah, I think that uh, you know Uber uh, going back to Uber, not to make it a cliche, but has certainly changed the game from a user experience perspective in terms of mobile buying and uh, on-demand ordering ex- uh, experience. And I think that some of the airlines are adopting and making their apps better. The JetBlue app is particularly good. Um, Delta app is certainly decent. Um, and um, I do think that uh, you know, if you look at a site like Tablet Hotels, which I hope it survives because it's a very nice way of buying hotels. They curate the right type of hotels online. I do think that some of the larger things that are you're seeing in other industries where curation becomes a big part of the digital experience, uh, and this is real human curation as opposed to just like technology uh, recommending you a few hotels. Um, I do think that that plays a part in it and that's coming into the picture. Uh, Hotel Tonight, for example, is also a good buying experience as well. They used to curate and then they have raised a bunch of money and now they have to scale, which means they have to dilute the curation experience by giving you everything. Um, But I do think that curation is helping. I do think messaging from a technology perspective, which is a very exciting technology messaging, which is a mix of human to human communications through apps like, you know, WhatsApp or or Snapchat and others, um, that's improving the customer service experience, hotels are beginning to adopt. Uh, Hyatt is uh, testing with Facebook Messenger on one-to-one communication. So instead of taking it out on Twitter and becoming completely public about grievances or even customer service, um, technology is allowing them to solve these problems or um, even communicate with the with the guests in a one-to-one environment, which definitely helps a lot. Um, so, you know, there's hope in terms of technology the right mix of technology and humans. And by the way, this uh, travel agents, they're not making a comeback, but travel agents have become, have uh, their, their business is actually steady and growing in to some extent. Um, there's research out there that the millennials are using travel agents more than the generations before that. I think it's because of this 
you know, hate selling an overwhelming amount of choices that people are going back to um, uh, humans to some extent. And the right mix of humans plus technology does give me hope. Meg, what are you seeing on the UX user experience? I mean, side? mobile is everyone's best friend. You can't ignore it. It needs to be central to how you do everything. And technology enables you to use that platform in the best way. But I definitely agree with with Rafat. I mean, this new generation of frequent travelers, particularly business travelers, are looking for personalized recommendations and experiences. And so the data we have at our fingertips that's brought to us by, you know, every piece of technology and mobile device that exists is going to enable us to do that. But it's figuring out the right way to do it so you're not having these hate selling experiences and you're, you know, capturing the the minds and hearts of people when they travel I mean, to sound goofy, but when you can do that, it's going to create a relationship with a consumer that they'll hopefully choose your brand when they're on these sites like Kayak and Priceline. And, and uh, aside from looking at the best price, they're looking for your brand name. Yeah, you know, I do try to accomplish every show, Meg, by by never mentioning the word millennial. You know, it's like <laughs> there should be a, a bucket of green slime that falls on my head every time I say millennial. You know, it's like you can't oh, do that fell. on television, you know? <laughs> it's clickbait. Oh, it's clickbait. I don't it know. Works. But let's talk about the millennials out there. I mean, they're a strange bunch with their Netflix and chill and all the, you know, their Uber this and the Uber of that and, uh, you know, Amazon Prime. I mean, here's the thing. The the, the loyalty, this is what I, I, I don't get. You're seeing all this um, consolidation and conglomeratization, whatever you want to call it. And there isn't a brand loyalty among uh, these younger people. If, if, for example, they're talking about them not even caring about buying cars, if, if people are questioning the whole idea that you need to own a car, forget about renting a car, forget about taking that shuttle from you know the, the airport baggage area to the thing. If, 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 if Uber and Lyft are doing it in these big cities, I mean, if they are indicator species, and if you kind of net present value the Airbnb experience where it's... It's it's like intensely brand disloyal and almost brand promiscuous. You wonder where this is going to head in five or ten years. I mean, think about it. I, I know you guys must crunch this left and right, and you bring in these futurists and you tell them to look into their crystal ball. And this this takes Mr. Rafat Ali on the lecture circuit. But maybe maybe we're understating how big this industry that has taken for granted the fact that it could hate sell you for so long is going to get walloped. Yeah, I mean, I think it's loyalty will be flipped on its head. You know, loyalty now is based on these points junkies that are staying places to get free nights. Um, but loyalty might not even be the word we want to use if we're thinking about millennials, which is the dirty word. But, you know, they have a totally different expectation based on all this technology and these newer companies that they're experiencing. And they're going to want to stay somewhere that's part of their life as a human, not somewhere that they've racked up points traveling for business. You know, loyalty will become more of a relationship that, you know, brings new partners into your life or that fits with the kind of life you want to lead, not something that you're, you know, leveraging your credit card and, and points to get. I don't know what that new you know, picture of loyalty is, but I don't think that millennials are disloyal. I think that they just view loyalty in a way that we haven't even really defined yet. What do you think, Rafat? I agree with that. I th I think that, you know, even if you forget the millennial part, the macro scenario is completely clear. The present of the world is cities. Cities have become the larger thing. If if that's true, the future of travel is in cities. And travel not just by, I mean, like, travel includes transport for us. So how do you make the life of locals and uh, by making the life of locals better, you're making the life of travelers better as well, by the way, it turns out. So... 
those are the big macro things that are happening. The rise of smart cities, which is a very buzzwordy term these days. But essentially what that means is how do you make uh, transport seamless and mobile and and easier for people in a city? Um, typically public transport and how do you make it more accessible? So all of those things are happening, which means that those big trends are colliding with let's say, millennial habits of not owning too many things and renting and having things on demand. So it's a perfect uh, sort of clash of things that are happening and one is enabling the other. So I think it will go beyond millennials and, you know, people like us too that are, I don't know, Gen X, whatever. What are we? Gen X? We're the lost generation. (laughs) Uh, One of the generations. Certainly the mindset of millennials writ large, which is the mindset of a modern traveler. I think that's the less, the bigger lesson to be learned as opposed to micro obsessing about or 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 hating or or hate loving the the millennials if you will. But I do think that there is the revenge of the analog is a thing. I I 100% believe in it. And when we hear another cliche in this is millennials are wanting to buy experiences not things. So maybe that's why they're bringing in the old travel agent that was left for dead years ago. I mean and if they're buying experiences, it's all in. You know, you don't want to get these kind of a la carte, the, the hellish. I mean, I got to tell you, when the kiosk of the airline tells me that you can buy premier security access, like when you can get ahead in this just cattle car scenario, I mean, it starts the trip off on the wrong foot. It just puts a, a bad taste in everything. If I want to buy the experience, I want complete control over it. You know, you better get with the program. All the different brands inherent in that trip experience better line up to not tick me off, Mm -hmm. I would think. Yeah, I mean, instead of competing, really, they're all competing on a different level. Who can tick you off the least, it seems like now. Um, But who doesn't want an experience when you travel? I think if you put a choice between, you know, a first-class ticket and the most amazing safari, you know, someone would choose a safari. I think that we just kind of get obsessed with what millennials think since everyone's going after them. But at the end of the day, when you travel, it's for the most amazing experience that is hopefully life-changing for a good way. Um, but I, I think that we t- just focus sometimes too much on this this growing generation. They're extremely important. They're going to be have a lot of you know discretionary money at their in their fingertips to spend. But you know ultimately experience is why everyone travels. And so we have to make that at, at the heart of everything we do. Even you know that boomers are retiring and going to be traveling in huge amounts with tons of money, and they care about experience too. And by the way, if you talk to Airbnb, they'll tell you boomers. Um, are one of the fastest growing market for them in terms of people wanting that that uh, unique experience because they've probably stayed at hotels their whole life. Right. End us off here with some uh, points of light, some points of promise, places where, Meg, you've been pleasantly surprised. You know, after being this wary, road-rugged traveler for years, these brands are going the extra step and, and conceding the fact that you're probably not a median traveler, that they see that you're out there, that they have a relationship with your ad agency. It behooves them to do a little something for you, leave an extra bonbon on your pillow. <laughs> uh, where are you seeing this? Where, and, and what might it suggest about the opportunities to kind of differentiate the brands over the next several years? I mean, I think that when when travel industry companies recognize you as a frequent traveler and they understand that you're never going to be loyal to just one brand and they let you cross over your loyalty or leverage their partnerships as a corporation to help my travel experience, I think those little nuggets can start to grow and become more interesting. Or if they recognize the type of 
lifestyle their different constituents lead and offer experiences that, you know, are interesting from that perspective. And it's not just all about being 100% loyal to one hotel or to one airline, but thinking about the the actual travel experience of someone where they're, they are going to be looking for the best price or they are going to be wanting to stay a block closer to something. Um, so finding those intersections between different areas of the travel industry and what those little nuggets can bring to an overall experience, I think, is what's most exciting to me as a individual travel personally, um, but also from a business perspective on the best way to kind of market these opportunities to new travelers. And it's become beyond cliche to say the Uber of XYZ, the Uber, you know, for example, Rafat, as I've told you, I've been called the Uber of thinkfluence and thought leadership. I mean, people want to <laughs> fly me around, you know, all thought leadership on demand, miss, I don't got the time, I got a show to tape. Um, <laughs> I thought that was Ted. I don't know when you became that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just going to put that on my LinkedIn profile in case it kind of, you know, wink, wink to someone. But who else out there? Who are, who are going to be the Ubers and, and Airbnbs of, of disruption? By the way, I just used eight cliches in one sentence. So <laughs> give me a, an upgrade to something, right? I do think that, you know, I mentioned the company, Silver Car, they only do one thing and one thing well. Uh, the experience of it, the car itself is so good and the, they come and pick you up at the airport and take you to their location and give you the car and never ask about, never talk about, hey, bring the car back full, otherwise we'll charge you this, et cetera, et cetera. Even if they do charge some of these surcharges, the experience itself is so good that you never, cons- you know, you never really uh, have a bad taste in your mouth at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, a company like Silver Car is good. I do believe that single function companies, um, there's hope in that, that do one thing and one thing well. Which is paradoxical, isn't it? Because the conglomerates can just bolt on that capability. It's not so hard for them to do it. But you're saying that the purity of the experience with like Silver Car, it's, it is paradoxical. What I, I mean, oh, hey, it's a very agreeable car, a silver Audi and a one size fits all thing. I don't have to worry about different features it's it's predictable i can just get it and go yeah and and it's uh, it's actually humans at the other end who text you and say hey text me when you are uh, at the airport and i texted them and they came and picked me up and uh so i think that mix of human and um and you know it's it's not boutique because they're all the same cars but uh but it felt like one certainly so i think you know there's hope in that um, I do think that the external pressures on the airlines, whether it's from uh, the big Gulf airlines or a company like Norwegian, which we haven't talked about, but Norwegian, which is the low cost carrier out of Norway, that's disrupting a lot of transcontinental um, transatlantic flights. Uh, they just launched um, U.S. fares uh, from New York from New York to Paris for like hundred and seventy five dollars. Um, they're definitely going to... What toilet seat uh, not included, obviously. I mean, how does that work? Well, I mean, I, I do think that whatever that is, it does put pressure on some of the U.S. airlines to say, okay, if we can't compete on price, we better compete on convenience and user experience and all those other things. So, But that takes us back to the past. I mean, when was the last time I got a hot towel for my face, right? These these airlines were deregulated. Then you had the era of JetBlue and, and, and Song and Ted and everything. It seems like what's old is new and vice versa. And this has kind of gone back to cyclicality. But what, what is frustrating, and I'll, you know, I'll leave it at this with the airlines, is there's no room for disruption. In the past, you at least had the chance for uh, the value jets for the people expresses for the jet blues to come in and make life miserable for the majors. And now the government has allowed them to merge down so much to kind of boil down the essence of everything. 
and to grow with the economy that there's no more room for disruption, that you have to disrupt at the edges with technology and user experience. So I'd be curious also to see if the government comes back and, and, and takes away some of the benefits of um, deregulation and, and their allowance to, to let these guys merge like crazy. Bernie Sanders, but that's not happening. <laughs> In closing, Meg, final thought? No, I think that the travel industry is ready for disruption. And, you know, the airlines, like you said, is going to be tough, but I'm excited to see what happens in the, the hotel space. And, and even, you know, as Rafat was saying, in the smaller city communities, how you can build up the local experience to bring more people in. And you heard it there. Uh, thank you so much, Meg Riley, Planning Director of User Experience and Strategy at the Martin Agency, and Rafat Ali, CEO and founder of Skift, a travel biz information provider. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us on NPR One, SoundCloud, Acast, iTunes, WRIR, and Stitcher. Conserve water by buying our bathrobe. Checkout is at 8.30 a.m. Our breakfast buffet is $30, not including a one-time out-of-state vacant facilities fee. I'm Robin Farzad. Bye-bye.